say the maracas, I go chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. Well, welcome to Cuba Pete, not a laughing matter. Today we have an incredible guest, Councilman Cedric Creer. I think we're related, Greer, Creer, because I think somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, we're all related. We're all related. That's true. That's true. He's uh, been a councilman here in uh, the city of Las Vegas since uh, 2018. 2018, April 18th, 2018. 2018. He is also a star tennis player. Who yeah. went to uh, Howard on a tennis scholarship, having won many tournaments there and uh, division, if I'm not mistaken. Correct? We have, yeah, won a couple of conference championships, but uh, I I used to be pretty good at tennis. Did you? Yeah, I, I used to be pretty good at walking. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. all changed. The old, the old days when you didn't wake up with no aching pain anywhere along the way, no back, no nothing was. The good old days. Right. And we have Dr. Cheryl Brewster, who is our Senior Executive Dean for Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity, and the Pipeline, because the intersection here now during Black History Month is racism that exists in medicine, and not just the delivery of care, but unfortunately in the educational system to become a physician. And your father was a physician, wasn't he? He was, he was. You know, my father grew up in Houston, Texas. Uh, he and my mother. In an area called Fifth Ward, if you're familiar with Fifth Ward, you're the Ward. Fifth Ward, aren't you? I, it's, <laughs> but I know the Fifth Ward in yeah. Houston. Yeah. So ours is Ward Five right here. There's well, just Fifth Ward, okay, but it's yes. the exact same thing. But he grew up in Fifth Ward, which was a you know a, a, a tough part of town, uh, and it still somewhat is. Third Ward in Houston is another tough one, but Fifth Ward is a tough one. And my parents grew up there. Uh, my mother grew up in a you know shotgun house over off of uh, Brackenridge, and my father. Grew up in a, a good home. His mother was an educator. My grandfather worked as a longshoreman in, in Houston. Uh, so he grew up in an, in an environment of education. But he went to medical school, uh, and he graduated from Prairie View A&M College outside of Houston. He did not get accepted to medical school because at that time, keep in mind, he was very segregated. Hence, you, had, you only got accepted to medical schools that were uh, HBCUs at that time. And so he went down to Meharry, down in Nashville, Nashville. and he got a master's degree there. Uh, he, he worked it, and he continued to really want to be a physician. And then he was the first black student admitted to University of California Irvine's medical school. And You're so, kidding me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he went to UC Irvine Medical School. Uh, he and another guy named Dr. Cotton, who I became friends with over the years. And how he got to Las Vegas is that the first black doctor in the, in the, in the state of Nevada Dr. Charles I. West heard about my father in California, and he tracked him down. You know, there was no emails, right. and there was no, you know, hit me on my Twitter handle. <laughs> uh, he tracked him down literally, and asked him to come out and help him with his practice here in Las Vegas. And he came out in the mid '60s, uh, right as they were desegregating the city because they signed the Moulin Rouge Agreement back in 1960 to segregate the city. And he helped him with his practice. His first practice was over in Historic West Side which was next to uh, the Moulin Rouge site, which is now demolished, and we're looking to rehabilitate that. But right next to there, and he serviced the black community. And the, the significance of that is that you can only go to restaurants, you can only go to um, stores if you were black in the historic West Side. And he serviced that community. And in essence, I like to think my father was a country doctor in the middle of the city because he had a bag at the house. Mm -hmm. He uh, did house calls. Wow. He delivered a baby. You know, how about a lady who came in front of the city council this past week, sent me an email saying that, you know, your father delivered 
all my siblings and myself. Wow. Wow. So family practitioner was also gynecologist. He was a, you know, he was an obstetrician. Yep. He was a dermatologist. He was everything back in back in the day. Yeah. So I'm I'm really blessed to have a legacy like that. Awesome. In my life. Well, That's a great story. I don't know if your parents are not alive or not, but they they'd passed. be. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But they'd be incredibly proud of what you're doing. Yeah. Because what, Thank because, you. Because yeah. what you're doing, and I'm saying this as a physician, is doing things to make people healthy. We intervene yeah. when they are sick. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think what's happening too is, and I'm not a physician. Um, I, I, my mother was a physician. She didn't have a medical degree, but as a wife of a physician, she was most definitely. <laughs> as, she was a as physician. A mother, she was most a definitely a doctor, tenured professor. Right. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, but but I am not. And, and But I can tell you that we're trying to look at issues and look at problems and try to solve them. And as we came into COVID and coming out of COVID, we saw that there was a higher a proportion of African-Americans and Latinos that contracted COVID mm-hmm. at a higher percentage than others. And so what are we going to do about that? And right. so there is an issue that we have to address. And I'm in a position to try to effectuate some change to make that happen. And, I, and, and listen, you are. Yeah. And as a physician who our educational system at Roseman is going to be based on the social determinants mm-hmm. of health, because that's the cause of 80 to 90% of diseases. Yeah. As we've stated before, your zip code is more important than your genetic code for mm-hmm. survival in this country right now. And that's one of the saddest comments you can make about a, an advanced industrial society. So let's talk about what you're doing over in the, in the historic West Side with yeah, the 100 plan. The 100 so, plan. You know, we all know it's posted on the website. So if you have any questions, you can definitely go to the website and see all of the logistics worked out. But for those of us that haven't had a chance to take a look, give us a little synopsis. In particular, talk about the health center sure. and the ideas you have around that. Sure. So uh, as a product of our community, you know, I live in a house that I grew up in, born and raised. I have been a part of many a discussion of how do we revitalize the historic West Side. Right. And uh, we, we, we come, we meet, we talk, there's a plan, and nothing happens. And so when I came into office on April 18th of 2018, I vowed to not let that happen again. Yeah. And I walk into City Hall, we had something called the 100 Plan that I had participated in to create. And the environment was this. I had to ask our director of planning, so can you send me a copy of the 100 Plan? And his response was, well, I know it's around here someplace. <laughs> let, me, let me find it right. and send it over to you. And that's where we were. So that's where we're starting. And I said, okay, let's get it. Let's dust it off. Let's look at it. Let's revitalize it. Let's update it. And we did that. And the first year, I literally had to get people on the same page with what we're doing. And that took a while to just get staff and get everybody in the building to understand that the 100 plan is something that we're going to execute on. And the 100 plan, it's not a 100-year plan, which many people think. It's the 100 (laughs) plan, which is historic urban neighborhood redevelopment. And it's a comprehensive strategy that is going to look at all aspects of a community and how do we make it better. So in my ward, I walk in and there's 15% unemployment. Um, We have the revitalization of the historic west side, the core. And then we also house half the homeless population that lives in in Las Vegas and all the social services for homeless is there. So our plan is looking at a number of heavy lifts. Uh, We started out with workforce development. We got to get people ready, trained, prepared to go to work. We have that. Culturally, we have it. And then as the Hunter Plan is a living, breathing document, We've updated it since then to include a healthcare facility. Um, and we've taken this plan and then we created the 100 plan in action. 
which is definable goals, which are definable timelines that says, how are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? When's it going to get done? And, we, and I literally just went on the road, hence to, uh, our outreach to Rosebud to say, hey, this is what we have going on. We would love for you to be a part of it. And I, and I will tell you this, uh, you guys blew me away with one, your response, with your timeliness and your response and having a plan already in place to execute on the things that we're talking about, right? And so our healthcare facility we're looking to build right in the core of the community is not a facility where if you're sick, if you have a cold, you go to like a, like a UMC Quick Care. It is a holistic approach to addressing the disparities in healthcare within our community. All right. So we're looking to go in and to teach people about better eating, exercise, uh, medications. Uh, how do you make a community better? And all those things are going to look at the uh, pre-existing conditions you may have: high blood pressure, uh, hypertension, um, other all the disparities aspects, all the that, disparities we, we that we know, know about. about. But let me right. tell you our ulterior motive: yeah. we hope to get students from there. Well, you know what? I think that would so be fantastic. That, yeah. that is what we're looking that's for. That's one of the well, goals. Okay. We for, find that first-generation college students yep. are driven. They are excellent. And in this country, we throw away talent by pricing them out. Of we do. Time. We do. We price it out. But, uh, you know, there's, there's... I have a degree in microbiology. I have a minor in chemistry. I was going to try to follow my father. You want to go to med school? I was thinking about going to medical school. What? I was not even thinking about it. I was, I was going to medical school. But... Uh, I didn't want it bad enough. Right. Right? I mean, you really have to, it has to be ingraining. And I know people that I sat at Howard with in my, in my zoology and micro classes and G-chem and they P-chem lived and classes. all that stuff. You could feel it within them. Yeah. This is what they wanted to do and, it, and this is what they did. I didn't have that. Yeah. And uh, so I said, let me try another route. But uh, I will say that there's so many students that have a passion for healthcare right. and for making things better. And that's it, one of the things we are trying to yeah. do, build, build those pathways for mm-hmm. those students that might not otherwise even Be- think that this is an option because they don't see people that look sure, like as a, as a university, when we go into a community, we go into perpetuity. Mm-hmm. We don't go grant-driven. This is part of our curriculum. Mm-hmm. And it becomes really, really important to do that because we're, we're not going to be community-engaged. We want to be community-dependent. Mm-hmm. We want them to know that those in the community, you're going to be teaching our students. Right. And one of the things that we're developing, too, for the community and the community centers, as well as the households that we're going to take care of is, why can't they get a faculty appointment? Sure. Well, it's interesting you say that, because uh, for almost 12 years, I was a regent for the Nevada System of Higher Education, mm-hmm. uh, which oversaw a trustee for all of our eight higher education institutions, our two research institutions, UNLV and UNR. Uh, I was, I like to think I helped in bringing university medicine, UNLV medicine into Southern Nevada because we desperately needed that. Uh, And so I was chair of our culture diversity and equity committee for a number of years. And I was a stickler on trying to create pipelines and opportunities, not only for students, uh, but also for faculty as well, right? Because uh, I would meet with a lot of students that I grew up in, in my ward that would go off to school and they would say, hey, you know, I don't see any teachers any that look like that me. Looks there's no like faculty me. that look like me. And then there's disparities with the growth of faculty. You know, when yep. we hire someone on a tenure track and all of a sudden the track gets changed for that person, but it doesn't get changed for this for person. For the other person. Um, and then we went through a recession and we had a brain drain where a lot of people left because they weren't being fulfilled here. Yeah. And they had to leave the state. Yeah. That's an issue. Um, and so you guys are primed to make a difference, not yeah. only in the quality of healthcare in Southern Nevada, 
uh, but also on the pathways for students and also yep. on the pathways for faculty to go into positions and go into research positions yeah. as well. well. So that, the idea of equity is important, yeah. right? No doubt about and, it. Sure. And, and, and understanding inclusion. that trajectory. And inclusion, sure. Right. Uh, you know, like, and, and I think you guys have done an amazing job in, in, the, in the time that you've been here to establishing yourself. And, and the cool thing is, is that I think it's resonating within our community. You know, I go out and talk about where we're going, I say I had a great call with, you know, uh, talk with Roseman, and they go, oh yeah, they're doing good stuff over there. I've heard that a number of times, so keep up the great work. Well, if we want to pr produce the future workforce, mm -hmm. we have to be the ultimate of what we preach. Yep. From both professionalism, ethics, to actually reflecting what we say. Sure. The, about five to six percent of American medical students are black. Mm -hmm. About five to six percent are Hispanic. A smaller percentage are on faculty. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of coming here to, uh, to Roseman and coming here to Vegas is that we could do it right. Mm -hmm. We have a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. yeah. And so the six of us that came out here, four out of the six are women. Less mm -hmm. than 8% of uh, uh, senior leadership in academic medicine are women. Mm -hmm. They are the better of the two genders. We know that, but that's, that's another story. <laughs> well, with two daughters and a wife I've been married yeah, to for 26 years, I, I, I will concur. There you go. Yes. The other thing is 50% of us are African-American. I'm Hispanic. Two are foreign-born. I'm including Canada, but that's mm -hmm. close enough. You know, that's still a foreigner. And the, the diversity of degrees that they bring to really be educators, to produce that future workforce, mm -hmm. to produce the best clinicians, the most ethical, the most humble, the most compassionate. And you get that from first-generation college students. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, it's interesting you use that analogy of a blank sheet, because uh, I say that all the time, and it's a great place to be where you can take a pencil and you can take a piece of paper and you can chart out where you're going and what you want to do. Right. So many times we get engaged in such established institutions. Uh, in higher, and look, in higher education is oh. one of the most established institutions yeah. you're ever going to find. You know, we're talking about, you know, centuries of the way that we've always done it. It's, it's in, they it's are ingrained. battleships in a yes, swimming pool. Yes, they don't move. Yes, it's very, very ingrained in how things work. Yeah. And, you know, I say that what we're doing is that we're changing the course of the river so the river is moving east to west. We're going to dam it up, and we're going to stop, and we're going to go, you know, make a know, hard right away. Make make a hard right. <laughs> make a hard right. And, and that doesn't happen easily in government, and it definitely doesn't happen easily in higher education. So I, I applaud yeah. you even having that mentality to say, how do we and, how do and, we shift the paradigm? And, and coming out here to Southern Nevada, we don't have the anchors of tradition mm -hmm. that you have on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question: What can we do as educators? in our curriculum mm -hmm. that you would recommend to us to produce the type of physician we need for this area? I think it's a lot of it is outreach and a lot of it is getting into the schools and getting into the students at an early, early age. age. You know, um, I, I had a, my, my kids used to go to Agassiz School and we, we did a college trip and when we were in third, they were third grade, fourth grade, fourth grade, and oh, took wow. kids on a college tour. Uh, and I was a chaperone uh, on two trips to DC and also went to Atlanta. And so we took the kids and we went to, you know, Morris Brown, went to Spelman, went to Clark, went to Morehouse and saw the schools. And there was a discussion out there saying that, well, why are you taking the kids so early there? Mm -hmm. uh, but I can tell you that the impact it that makes it makes difference. of getting a kid on campus, of seeing that carries through them throughout the course of their entire life. It does. They will always know that they were on Morehouse's campus and saw Spelman and took a picture on the you know, right on the yard and, and, and you know, I, and it instilled in me the importance of it. I'm in a position, uh, my wife is an environmental biologist and I'm a, you know, a, a politician now, I guess. Yeah, I, 
I'm hesitant to it's always say that. It's not a dirty word. It's well, not a dirty word. I never considered myself a politician until I got in City Hall. But I am a politician. Right. Because I deal in politics. But everywhere that we travel, I take my kids to a college campus. Yeah. My wife's from New Orleans. I'll take them on to Xavier. I'll take them to whatever. I buy them a T-shirt. Yep. And I instill in them. And so, you know, my kids walk around the house with a Temple T-shirt on. Yeah, they walk yeah, around yeah. with, you know, University of North Carolina shorts on. And it just gets them in the mindset of that. Yeah, and no, I think that definitely. that is probably the best thing that can be done. And being engaged, legitimately being engaged where you sincerely care and uh, trying to help them find pathways yeah. to, because there's so many obstacles for, for young kids nowadays. This and, we know. And, and the other thing that we do is we're gonna send our students into the community mm -hmm. and not just into the community clinics, mm -hmm. but into people's households that they're gonna be responsible yeah. for taking care of with an interprofessional team, which does a lot. I mean, sure. uh, uh, Lou Brewster, the other Dr. Brewster, not a senior as her, but the other Dr. Brewster, when we uh, were doing this at our last institution, did something that was remarkable. He would have, the, the medical student was not allowed to ask how you felt. Mm -hmm. They had to ask, what is your most urgent need? Mm -hmm. That puts in perspective to the student that maybe medicine isn't as important as we think it is. Maybe paying the rent, mm -hmm. maybe putting food sure. on the table, being able to buy the medications. Yeah, You have to put things in perspective. You know, I'm a gastroenterologist and I would always hope somebody said my most urgent need, oh, a colonoscopy, but mm -hmm. nobody has ever said that, so mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm still waiting. It's, it's, you know, my father was, I used to joke with him. I said, Dad, how was your day? He goes, good, a lot of sick people. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, it, it, a lot of sick people today. And you know, the irony of that, it, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. My, my daughter is a public interest lawyer. Actually, mm -hmm. she was one of the founding attorneys for Black Lives Matter. Oh, sorry, okay. And uh, when she got into law school, and uh, she, I'll, I'll brag about her, she went to Harvard. Mm -hmm. I, ma I married way up. Hey, you know what, nothing wrong with that. And so I said to her, I said, you know, I, I know you like to help people. I know you're smart, I married your mother. And uh, I said, why don't you wanna be a doctor? And her first answer was actually pretty funny. She goes, you know, Dad, when it's take your kid to work day and you're doing colonoscopy, seriously, you think that's what I want to do for a living? <laughs> but her second answer was very profound. And she said, Dad, you doctors don't get it. You're doctors to people. We attorneys should be doctors for society. Mm. And that's the perspective we have to have our students see that there's a whole society. It's just not an organ. It's just not a disease. Yeah. It's not even just an individual. You have people surrounding you. Yeah, you know, the medical profession is is has changed so much. I'm obviously I'm preaching to the choir, mm -hmm. but just from my little perspective, you know, people say to me all the time, you know, your father was my doctor. And I said, yeah, he was my doctor too. You know, right. when I got sick, I'd come home and say, dad, I'm not feeling good. He'd take care of me. And then when he passed, I had to go out and find a doctor. A doctor. Literally, and, and I knew I'd go to my father's friends, and yeah, you know, and it's just though, um, how do you make people feel as though in today's medical profession that physicians in the, in the, in, in the industry cares about them, right? It, it's gotten to a point, I guess this is, it's, it's gotten to a point though where, you know, you are a number on a chart, you know, you schedule at 9, 908, 916, and you're, you just come in right. instead you, of, you know. We, we have to instill it from the day they walk into medical school. Mm -hmm. And it has to be done by example. Mm -hmm. we all, we're preparing the future workforce. Medicine's gonna change drastically in the next decade or yeah. more. Uh, both from technology to delivery systems and all these things. But we have such an embarrassing problem of disparities. Uh, a report came out from the government today that 
the life expectancy in America dropped by one year in 2020. Is that right? Yes. Is that right? Not only that, since 2017, the life expectancy has been dropping. The only industrialized nation to do that. We have to sit back and say, this is embarrassing. Mm -hmm. This is really wrong. And it's just not a matter of diagnosing and treating. It's prevention. Yeah. It's giving people the opportunity for health, not intervention. Yeah, and that's what we want to try, try to accomplish, what we will accomplish yes. with our health outreach facility that's right. going to go on the historic website, S specifically that. Um, and, and I think that people uh, really need to feel as though the, that people care about them mm -hmm. and that going to the physician is not just going, you know, really, like you said, just, just for your ailment. Right. I mean, they're going to so sometimes talk it out to work it out, yep. to get themselves mentally uh, right. Yeah. Even simple things. A patient needs to be engaged from the second they walk in. Yeah. The, I, I'm going to expect all our clinicians mm -hmm. from Rosemond to go out in the waiting room and get their own patient. Is that right? Yes, because that's a simple courtesy wow. to an individual. Yeah. And when I, when I had my practice, not only would I do that, I would never introduce myself as Dr. Greer. I'd introduce myself as Joe Greer because I wasn't giving the other person a title. Mm -hmm. And... What, what happens in modern society is the patient thinks we're so rushed, I gotta I got get out of here. Yeah. They make them feel comfortable, they give you the story, and the story gives you the diagnosis, and the diagnosis then lets you, you know, do what you need to do to make them feel better. Yeah, you know, there's, there's something to it, though, that has to get more personal yeah. when it comes to medicine. And, it's and, and it's that, a different culture. That's an, it's a different culture. It's creating you know, a called, different culture. I've called doctor's office and, and requested to speak with the doctor, and I've said, look, I'm sure the doctor's busy, I'm not saying I need to speak with him right this second, but I'd appreciate the doctor coming back. Right. And, and they put, transfer me to the office manager. Mm -hmm. Office manager says, you know, the doctor doesn't talk to patients. And I, and I, and I was like floored that you would even, at least it was honest. <laughs> yes. You know, at least, at least it was honest. Right. A doctor doesn't talk to patients. You on know, the phone. Just, yeah, on the phone. You come in, make an appointment, you can, and so. And, and because, I think, they, because they can bill. Well, they can, sure they can bill. But, you know, and I also think that, Think that, like, and I always say this too, and, and I'm not saying I am above the reproach or whatever, but uh, if it's happening to me and it's happening to people that, you know, I know who are not necessarily going to settle down and just going to take no for an answer. There's a lot of people, okay, well, I guess I'll never talk to my doctor. Instead of saying, no, hold on. Is it, are you really, you know, educated enough to kind of right. push the envelope a little bit? It's happening along the way for so many other people. Yeah. It, and it goes back to our, you know, the, the, the challenge of the full professorship. If it's happening to, to deans or happening to other high-profile people within the system, right. then you know what's going on with the person with that doesn't have With the person that doesn't have access to the resources. Yeah, doesn't have the resources to do it. Yeah. You know, they're completely just out of the loop. They're, they're ignored oftentimes, and we mm -hmm. have to make sure we're addressing all of their needs at these multiple levels. And I think it kind of goes back to how we train yep. our physicians yeah. and, and how we, as we used to say, bring them up, yeah. right? And we got to start earlier. We have to start introducing the concept of, you know, any health profession and, and get that instilled in them at that early age. Yeah. It also Create comes into our admission criteria. We, yeah. we tend to admit students that in medicine that have not really mastered their social skills. Yeah. So we actually have to teach motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. The getting students that can already communicate with somebody makes a big, big difference. That's well, it's also 
That's the traditional way that students got accepted were metrics sure. and metrics alone, mm-hmm. right? And metrics so, that had nothing to do and, with and, what kind of doctor yeah. you're going right. to be. By the and way, right? And so now we're talking sure. about what are the attributes that make a good doctor? How can we do what is called a holistic review mm-hmm. on an applicant when they? What is it? Did they have to work while they were in? A, were they supporting their family? You know, what are yeah. the things that they had to do in order to be successful with this process? And so we're finding first-gen students, there's a level of resilience that they have. Mm -hmm. Like, if they get a bad grade, they bounce back. Mm -hmm. Whereas the A student gets a bad grade, we got to put them on beta blockers, and they're all depressed, (laughs) and they can't figure out, what what do I do with a B? It's not an A. I don't know. I've never seen this foreign thing (laughs) in my life. So, you know, you're talking about getting a group of students that already know how to multitask, have that built-in resilience because they've had to fight their way to where they got. And they know how to communicate because they have to ask for things. They're not given those things. And so those are the students that we are seeking at our institution. And we've always thought from our last institution, and and Joe can cite those stats, you know. 75% of our students (laughs) at our last institution only got into our institution. Yeah. 55% 55% were African-American or Hispanic. Mm-hmm. It's only about 10% in the rest of the country. One-third were first-generation college. Every single graduating class we had had the highest step scores. That's like the boards of any school in the state of Florida. That's eight universities dating back to 1956 with the University of Miami. We kicked their butts with students that they wouldn't even interview. Wouldn't take them. And, yeah. and so, that, and, and the other thing we want to tell uh, the Las Vegans is, we want you guys to apply to medical school. Yeah. Because- Just not yet. Just not yet, not yet, yet. yet. in a few years when we- Give us a few years. (laughs) Because you you only have about 500 students a year from the state applying to medical school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then we, you know, the challenge that we're faced also with expanding graduate medical education, expanding GME within the state so the physicians stay within the state. So they stay here. Uh, That's vitally important. We have to to move that needle so when they get in. They stay. Well, you know, one of the things they could do is, you know, you have these systems here, large not-for-profit systems, uh, renowned, uh, Mm -hmm. intermountain, things of that nature that are always recruiting for doctors. Yeah. Whereas if they could turn around and say primary doctors, why don't we give scholarships to these kids and then they have to, like if the military pays for you, Mm -hmm. they go within the system, they train them, you know what people will stay. But we also find that first generation college students tend to want to come back home. Yeah, well that's that's good to know. I know that it was a challenge uh, when I was on the Board of Regents, you know, this we had one medical school, public medical school, University of Adam, School of Medicine, and they graduated 50, 55 students a year, uh, many of those were leaving the state to go do their, to, to their, to residency. do their residencies elsewhere. And look, if you're doing orthopedics and you're going to Johns Hopkins, and look, yeah, you're going to Johns Hopkins. Yeah. Right. Uh, but if you're going to you know, Arizona to go do something else, then is a, that's a different story. Yeah. And so that's a challenge. Um, and you know, in 2006, there was a great study. I'm not sure if you guys have taken a look at it, uh, and I'll send it to you. Uh, it was the Governor Gwynn at the time put out a call because we were at DEFCON 10 in terms of healthcare in the state. Mm. And he convened a commission headed up by Don Snyder, who was a banker who ran the Fremont Street Experience. And they created uh, this report. They submitted to the legislature. And the report talked about that we were at 48th, 49th number of physicians per 100,000 population, nurses, 48th, 49th, the mortality rate was much higher. GME was was needed, and our licensure rate for physicians for the state of Nevada was much greater than it was, I guess, in other states. 
And so we were at and, DEFCON and 10. And the process to get the process, Yeah, the process was, was much greater yeah. than it was in other parts of the state. So it was hindering. Oh, and also our um, uh, insurance rates were a lot higher for mal- malpractice services, greatly higher. And so all those factors of why we can't keep physicians and why we're at the bottom. And I, and I, would, I would beg to, to say if we've moved that needle from 2006 to we where we are it. now on those key metrics. So, and, and, and so what, right now, you still, right now, we are still 47th with healthcare professionals. Right. And so we, we see this as an opportunity, mm-hmm. right, to move that needle, right, by getting those students that would not normally attend medical mm-hmm. school. Including right? the, Moving that needle is very vital. Mm-hmm. De- de- dealing with a pipeline. Now, this was started a little bit before we got here at Roseman, but bringing them in in the third year, after their third year in college, regardless of your uh, undergraduate studies, mm-hmm. that they would get a master's degree with us in science, bio, biomedical sciences, but they would also get an undergraduate degree from the uh, institution, mm-hmm. uh, uh, CNN. Yeah, Nevada State College. Or, 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 you know, any one of these. And that does a couple things. We know from uh, Cheryl that if you can maintain a 2.8 average or above and you go to a graduate school, you'll do very well in medical school. We'll get you there. You know, the, uh, the, the, the whole idea is we keep looking at GME and using that as a single criteria mm-hmm. for having students stay, uh, physicians stay here. But first-generation college does something else. It not only produces a physician, it produces an individual that can now create wealth for their family. Right. Whether the wealth is owning a house or paying right. for your kid's college, whatever it is, that becomes really important. And they become that member of that family that can open the doors for others. That's, my father's the first one to finish high school in our family. Mm-hmm. And his granddaughter went to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Not me. Right. Okay. <laughs> Not you did me. okay. I did all right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it's that education and those opportunities, like what your father did. Yeah. That allow it for you, for your kids. Sure. Right. You know? Well, you, you know, it's interesting because I always say that uh, the work that we're doing, if I could change your life, it changes your family's life and yep. it changes your community's yes. life. Yep. And so uh, you're, you're spot on on that. And I do agree with you that people will come and want to stay and yeah. you know, raise up their families. And This is where they grew up and this is they want to come. Um, and, you know, their families are so proud of them. You know, yes, yeah. no doubt about it. No yeah. doubt about it. it well, it, I want to... I want to thank you, Councilman oh, Creer. Man, Time great. flies when you're having fun. It Time does. flies it when does. you're having fun. I know this was a great conversation. I think we have a lot of work to do out there, especially with creating these pathways for students in your area mm-hmm. of um, Ward 5. I was about to say the fifth ward again. Fifth ward. What's it's in it? my head. Yeah. It's in my head. Sorry about that. So, you know, we have a lot of work ahead of us. And, you know, we you know, are committed to working with you in your office that. and doing the things that need to get done to really uplift a community. Well, I really appreciate that. And, and, and our team, uh, starting with Dr. Brewster, the other Dr. Brewster, Dr. Gillis, Dr. Faircloth, uh, Dr. Esposito. By the way, she's German. <laughs> yeah, Is that right? Yeah, you have the only school where you got a Cuban named Greer <laughs> and a German named Esposito. Esposito. But... Every, we all came out here sight unseen. Yeah. Is because, that right? okay. And we saw, I, I, I have had family here, so I, I knew Vegas, but, and, and everybody had been to Vegas. But we saw an opportunity here. We are very mission-driven, mm-hmm. and we're driven by social justice. As a matter of fact, in the medical school, we have a wall of social justice. And my favorite poster there is one that says, 
nah, Rosa Parks, 1955. Sure. Right. You know, and, I, mm-hmm. and that to me, you know, the, 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 there's so much that we need to change in our society. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to be physicians, we have to be part of that change. Yeah, I agree. You know? Well, you know, it's a very highly esteemed uh, profession as well, and people look up to physicians in our community. And uh, we have to find a way where physicians are not on a pedestal, but we're We should we're not there be to, on a pedestal. We yeah. should be part of the team. Yeah. That's why the idea of saying, what does your immersed urgent need, not how do you feel, yeah. really teaches humility to the students. Yep. All right, I think with we're that, out of time. With that compliment, <laughs> I'd like to say, Thank you very much. Thank you. And you you don't know the honor it has been for us to get to know you. No, it's been a pleasure. You guys are fantastic. And you want to shout out your? Oh, my Alpha Alpha, 1906. (laughs) (laughs) You guys, this is Cuba Pete. No laughing matter, but no matter how serious the situation is or the topics that we discuss, we have to have a smile and maybe laugh a little bit sometimes because that helps others. Thank you very much. From Studio A in Las Vegas. I'm signing out.